congregations. Uh, I want to echo what Brother Bill said that this church, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ, functions and does what it does because of so many people who use their spiritual gifts and do so much work here. And I am eternally grateful for that. God has always been faithful to send godly men and women here to work in the church and accomplished over the years is because God uses his people who are willing to be used and uh, that's the way church is designed and that's what God does so thank you for being here today thank you for singing and serving and doing so many uh, wonderful ministries in the name of Christ uh, in this area so take your Bibles this morning and go to Revelation chapter 15 as we move through the book of Revelation we come to chapter 15 this morning and I call it the the storm clouds gathering. If you've lived in Florida for very long, uh, you know about summer the summer storms. Uh, you know, in summertime, humidity day and night never gets below 90%, it feels like. And, uh, you know, by 11 o'clock in the morning, it's 92 degrees. And by mid-afternoon, 2 or 3 o'clock, the ocean breezes blowing in from the coast clash in the middle of the state and great big thunderstorms develop and uh, again if you've lived around here long you see them coming you look over on the horizon and it's dark and uh, I've, I've seen them those kinds of storms uh, blow over trees and uh, flood low-lying areas uh, one time uh, Sherry swore she would never go boating with me again after this event we were in the St. John's River and uh, one of those storms blew up and uh, I was still in the river so we hid under the Buckland Bridge. We pulled up underneath there and parked, uh, which worked out just fine. But uh, Sherry didn't think so. And uh, so, but those storms can uh, those storms can blow in on you pretty rapidly, and they're and they're and they're scary when they get here. Well, spiritually, um, we find that same picture in chapter 15. Chapter 15 is uh, what we might call the prelude to the final series of judgments, the bold judgments. And in this chapter, we see the storms of judgment gathering on the horizon, if you will, the preparation for the pouring out of the, of the bold judgments that's being made in this chapter. Now, you remember, in the tribulation, there are three sets of seven judgments. In the beginning, Jesus opened the seven seals on the scroll, and those seven seals introduced judgments upon the earth. And then after the seal judgments were the uh, trumpet judgments, and with each of the sounding of seven trumpets, more judgments fell from God upon the earth. And you will remember uh, that they began to increase in severity. In other words, the seal judgments were bad. The trumpet judgments were more bad, okay, worse. And then by the time you get to the, to the bold judgments, what you will find out is that these judgments will be the most severe, they will be the most rapid in sequence, and they will bring the tribulation to a conclusion with the coming of Christ after these judgments fall. And so given that these are the last of the judgments and that the tribulation will be brought to an end, it is fitting that God gave John this prelude, if you will, the preparation in heaven. And really it's a privilege. We get to see into heaven the preparation that will be made for these uh, last judgments to fall on the earth before the tribulation comes to an end. So look at verse 1 as we begin to see this preparation in heaven. Now John said, then I saw another sign in heaven, another vision, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, 
for in them the wrath of God is complete. Now it's interesting that John would call this vision great and marvelous. I don't know about you, but I've read the other visions before this one, and I think they're all great and marvelous. I think it's pretty impressive that God would give him these visions and he would be able to record them for us. Now why would John uh, call this one great and marvelous in comparison to the others? Because it's like a crescendo. It's like a uh, as the tribulation went on, the judgments began to be more and more severe. And so what John says is this, these judgments, this uh, preparation for these seven bold judgments are the height of the judgments. They are the height of God's punishment on a wicked and rebellious world. And he said, so it's great and marvelous that God is going to pour out his wrath. It is the high point, if you will, a point of great intensity by the end of the tribulation. Now, seven angels are engaged here. Uh, I am always intrigued with the fact that God uses angels for a lot of things throughout the Bible. Uh, in this case, these seven angels are chosen to be the instruments who will deliver this judgment. They will be the ones who will pour out the bold judgments. Now, we know from our study in the book of Revelation uh, that angels are very active in God's plan. And in fact, when we read the Bible, angels have been active throughout human history. Now, we could, we could spend a lot of time this morning recounting Old Testament accounts of uh, but let me just give you uh, two very quickly that show you that angels have always been engaged in the plan of God as God deals with humanity. Uh, back in uh, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah had, had uh, in their sin and their wickedness, reached a point where it, it so offended God that God decided to judge them then. He decided to deal with their sin. And you'll remember that Abraham was there and Lot, his nephew, was in Sodom and Gomorrah was in Sodom with his wife and his children. And Jesus came in, in a pre-incarnate uh, theophany. Jesus appeared in a human form before his incarnation with two angels, which is interesting. And these two angels and Jesus show up at, at Abraham's tent. Remember that? And, and Abraham says to Sarah, hey, go fix some supper. Probably didn't say it exactly like that, but something like that. And she, uh, you know, slew some animals and cooked some food. And, and Jesus and the angels put down the meal with Abraham. Now, that's a whole whole other thing, isn't it? So they, they sit down to eat. And by the way, just a little side note, there's eating in heaven, okay? Jesus and the angels are eating, so I'm, I'm, good. I'm down with that. That's good, okay? So, so Abraham and the angels, they're there. And remember, Jesus goes with Abraham up on the mountain and overlooks Sodom and Gomorrah and begins to share with Abraham. Jesus said, can I withhold from, from one who's a friend what I'm going to do? In other words, Abraham was a friend of God. And so the two angels, though, were dispatched to go into Sodom and check out the wickedness, right? And they were tasked with getting Lot and his wife and his kids and taking them out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then they were instrumental in bringing the fire and brimstone down on the city. So we see all the way back in the Old Testament, we could pull up many of those illustrations where angels were dispatched by God. Angels accompanied Jesus in his pre-incarnate state as he dealt with Abraham and he dealt with humanity. Then we move to the New Testament, uh, which is more germane to us, if you will. In Acts chapter 12, Peter's arrested. Herod had been persecuting the church and he puts Peter in jail and he thinks it'll make the high priest happy and the church, what's the church doing? The church is praying for Peter that God would do something. Well, when you ask God to do something, don't be surprised when he does it because they were praying that God would deliver Peter and so God sends an angel. Remember? He goes and opens up the jail cell and and tells Peter, uh, you know, skedaddle, get, go, you know, opens all the doors, and Peter goes out, 
And that was, that's a funny story because Peter shows up at the house where they're praying and he knocks on the door. And the little maiden said, who is it? And he said, it's Peter. And she didn't believe him. She ran back and said, no, Peter's locked up while they're praying that Peter would get out. So there's our faith, right? So, so the angels, this angel was used of God. One angel, by the way, is used of God to open the jail cell and, and let Peter out. And what we learn from that, without getting into a lot of angelology here, is, is that angels are powerful. And angels are commissioned by God to do numerous things. And in this case, um, there's going to be seven angels who are specifically directed by God to deliver these judgments. And for us today, you say, well, what are angels doing today? Well, Hebrews 1.14 said, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? You know what angels are doing today? They're working, in, they're working on God's behalf, on the behalf of the church, and on your behalf as a born-again child of God if you're saved. In fact, one writer said angels are active in bringing us through life, through this life, to the inheritance Jesus has awaiting for us. In other words, they know God's plan, and they're engaged in God's plan as God would work his plan out in the world. So these seven angels are picked specifically by God to be the deliverers, the, the ones who will bring God's wrath. And then I want to say a word about God's wrath here in verse 1 before we move on. It says that God's wrath will be complete. Now, that's an interesting statement. Have you ever given much consideration to God's wrath? I mean, have you ever thought much about it? You say, well, no, pastor, I'm saved and I'm delivered from wrath. Amen, I'm with you, okay? I'm, you know, don't need to think about it anymore. Well, no, let's think about it a little bit, okay? If you are saved, if you're watching online today or you're here or you watch this video later, to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ is to be delivered from the wrath of God. Man, I, that's a wonderful thing. That, that ought to put your heart at peace and, and put you at ease in life. But what about God's wrath? What about those who reject Jesus Christ? What about those who live in rebellion and those who break God's laws and, and the world, certainly in the tribulation? What does it mean that God's wrath will be complete? Well, let me give you three thoughts about God's wrath, three things that we need to understand about God's wrath. Number one, God's wrath is based on a resolute hatred of sin. It's based on a resolute hatred of sin. God does not hate people. In fact, the Bible says, for God so loved the world. God loves us. God will save anybody who will come. God will pardon the sin of anybody who will ask. No one sins so much that God won't forgive them. No one's done anything so bad that God won't forgive them. Matter of fact, one of the worst human beings in all of human history, in modern human history, is probably Adolf Hitler. God would have saved that man's soul if he would have asked him and took him to heaven. Okay? God will save anybody. However, God has a passionate, a passionate rage over sin. Now listen, Paul, uh, uh, John, not Paul, Paul, Paul and John use the same word, but John uses it here. He uses the word thumos. In our use of the word thumos for rage or for wrath, it means a, a, an emotional passion or some kind of outburst of anger. Uh, if you've ever lost your temper, which I know none of you would have done that in here, but if you've ever lost your temper, that is a form of thumos. That is a form of passion. It's an emotional response. Now, from a human perspective, it's often sinful because when we respond in our emotions, we, we typically respond unchristlike or in an unspiritual way. However, when God has a passion against something, which it is here, his resolute hatred of sin, it is perfect. It is not sinful. It's not based on, on some frivolous emotion. God has a thumos. He has a passionate rage against sin. 
always, every sin, every day. Now, someone might say, well, if God has this kind of measured, resolute uh, hatred of sin, uh, why isn't anything happening? Well, I'm glad you asked because that brings us to point number two. Number one, God has a resolute hatred of sin. Number two, God is storing up his wrath right now. Let me explain that because it's directly connected to his wrath being completed at the end of the tribulation. If God gave us what we deserve every day, what would happen? None of us would be here, right? We'd all, we'd all be wiped out and we'd be in hell. If God gave us just payment for our sins before we were saved, because everybody didn't come out of the womb saved, right? I mean, at some point in your life, you came to understand the gospel and you trusted Jesus by faith and you were saved. What if God had judged us before we were saved? What if God had poured out his wrath just, justifiably on our sin because we were, we were sinners? Then we would have died and we would have went to hell. We would have suffered the full expression of God's wrath. God doesn't do that today, does he? Matter of fact, people do wicked things every day and it seems like nothing happens. And listen, lost people misunderstand that, don't they? Lost people think, well, I'm just, I can sin and get away with whatever I want. And even sometimes Christians think, man, I can sin and nothing happens. Oh, no, there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening, especially for lost people. God has taken that wrath that he would have poured out on that sin, which he justifiably has a, a passion against, and he stores it up and puts it in a cup, so to say. You say, well, why is he doing that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and be saved. You say, why is God storing up his wrath right now? It's called grace. It's called mercy. It's called opportunity. God is storing up his wrath in this day instead of pouring it out on us in a day of grace so that men and women can hear the gospel and have an opportunity to be saved. But that does not mean, listen to me, that does not mean there's not a day of accountability. That does not mean that God is not, at, at some point, at the end of the tribulation, he's going to pour out his wrath, and it's going to be complete. You say, well, pastor, are we really storing up our wrath? Listen to what Paul said in Romans 2.5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up to yourself wrath, in the day of wrath and revelation. Paul said to the wicked, he said, those who are resisting God, you are treasuring up wrath to yourself. Can I encourage you this morning, if you're online or here this morning in this place and you've never been saved by faith in Jesus, don't presume upon the grace of God as if nothing's ever going to happen because God is storing up his wrath. It says it very clearly right here. And one day God is going to pour out his wrath. And when that day comes, it will not be pretty. No more restraint in that day. No more restraint. Listen, when it says here that God's wrath will be satisfied, it will be complete, it means God will pour it out without mitigation. He'll pour it out without it being watered down. He'll pour it out without it being restrained in any way. It will be in its full force. His passionate hatred of sin will become very evident for everybody to see when his wrath is complete. So wrath here is held back. Number three. How is it that it'll be completed? Well, it'll be completed in his justice. You see, God is just, and God is a just judge. 
And when he pours out his wrath, it'll be according to the deeds. It'll be according to the sins. And it'll be measured against each man and woman who rejected Christ in what they did in this life. And so it'll be just, and it will be complete, and God will pour it out in the end. Listen, what do we take away from that? Well, I could give you several things. Just let me think of two very quickly. Number one, how thankful we should be to be saved. How, how grateful we should be to God that he withheld his wrath from us, which we deserve, and then he pardoned it in Jesus Christ so that, we, so that we are no longer under the wrath of God, no longer under his judgment. And then secondly, it ought to motivate us to tell every lost man and woman around us about Jesus Christ because they need God while they have opportunity. Okay, So the very first verse, uh, we see this opening scene, and then we see the worship of the saints, those those tribulation saints that are in uh, in heaven at that time. Look at verses 2 to 4. Now, this is a very interesting scene because while, watch this, while God's wrath is beginning to be prepared to be poured out, the angels are lining up and they're getting their bowls and they're getting ready to go, worship is going on in heaven. Now, that's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Judgment's about to fall and worship is going on in heaven. Look at verses 2 to 4. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. Now these are the martyred saints of the tribulation. It's very clear they're the ones who gained victory over the beast and over the antichrist. They're the ones who were martyred for their faith. Now what are they doing? Look at verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. You know why they're saying that? Because God's about to pour out his wrath, and they go, you're just in doing that. You're righteous in doing that because they've rejected you. Look at verse 4. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Watch this. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested, made clear, revealed. A couple of things to think about in that passage. One, there's this sea of glass. We've seen this before back in chapter 4. We saw it when the, uh, when the elders and the raptured church were there and the four living creatures and the description of the throne of God. What is this thing? Is it a real sea? It's not water. It's not a liquid. In fact, it's a platform around the throne of God that's clear like crystal, and it's representative of God's holiness. You say, well, what exactly is it made of? I don't know. It, you know, does it shimmer? Apparently. Okay. Is it shiny? Yes. But it represents the holiness of God. Everything in heaven, listen, you say, what's that thing in heaven for? To reflect the glory of God. That's what it's all there for. You say, why are we going to be in heaven? Watch this. To reflect the glory of God. In heaven for all of eternity, you know what we're going to be? Exhibit A of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Because all of eternity, the angels are going to be looking at us going, man, I don't know how they got here. Must be good because God's so good. We're going to be an exhibit of God's love forever. This sea of glass, this crystal thing is clear and transparent and it reflects the glory of God and his representative of his purity. Now what's interesting here, same as we saw back in chapter 4, is that now it's mingled with fire. Why is that? What's the difference? Because fire is always representative of judgment and God's judgment's about to fall. So what's the connection here? Yes, God's holy and God's pure and he's just. But his wrath against sin is also real. And so here his purity and his holiness is mingled with the fire of judgment against sin. Listen, I, I tell you, I don't know about, I know you do. 
when I look at the world around me today and I, inter and I interact with the generation that's replacing us, and they are, they're the largest part of the workforce now, and they're the generation that's raising children and even younger, the Gen Xers and the Gen Zers and the Millennials. And I think about the, the, the worldview that's being taught to them and has been taught to them, this view of, of man is sufficient for himself. We have, we have lost a reverential fear of God is what we've lost. We've lost a reverential fear of God in our society and all the things that we do. And around the throne of God now we see this purity of God mingled with fire representing his judgment. Now, what are, these, uh, what are these saints doing? Look at them. Number one, they have the victory over the beast. How did they get that victory? Well, we said last week and the week before that when Antichrist uh, persecuted them, and tracked them down and tortured them and martyred them and they died. They were basically murdered for their faith. They were delivered from Antichrist. In other words, he could no longer harm them. They were delivered. They had the victory over him. But they had a victory over him in another way, and it has to do with their faith. Listen to 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Listen to this. For whatever or whoever is born of God overcomes the world. In other words, if you're born again by faith in Jesus Christ, you have overcome the world. Listen to this. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It is our faith in Jesus Christ that gives us victory over the world. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, those who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ have overcome the world, and then that overcoming is manifested in the way we live. Now, here's the problem again. Christians who profess openly and say, man, I'm a born-again child of God, or I'm a Christian and I've been saved and there's no victory in their life, there's a disconnect there. Because clearly John said our faith gives us victory over the world. Not perfection, but victory over the normal processes of this life. These saints refused to take the mark of the beast. These saints in that tribulation period trusted Jesus and refused to bow and worship him as God and it cost them their physical lives and they willingly willingly gave themselves and gave their lives to serve Jesus Christ. How do you and I have victory over the world today? It's by our faith in Jesus. How do we have victory over sin in our lives? It's by faith in Jesus Christ. We learned a really, really good, important truth yesterday morning in the men's study. When you face temptation, when those, when those idols rise up in your life and those things, whatever it is in your life that's a weakness and it begins to overcome you, if you have committed God's word to your mind and you've memorized it and it's in your heart, you can begin to quote God's word and you can bring, begin to bring up those verses in your mind and Satan has to flee and the sin has to flee. It's victory in the power of Jesus Christ and it's victory in the power of the Holy Spirit through God's word. So how do we have victory? Well, Paul said it in Romans 8, 31 and 37. Listen to this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Boy, what a great statement. If God's for us, who can be against us? Let me put it another way. If God's for me, the whole world can be against me, and it doesn't matter. You see, majority doesn't always make right, does it? Because, see, you and Jesus are a majority. And me and Jesus is a majority. And whatever God says is a majority. Why? Because he's God. So if God's for us, who can be against us? And he goes on to say, Who did not spare his own son? but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, Paul's reasoning is this. God's already given the greatest thing that could ever be given. He gave his son. How would he withhold any other thing from us in victory as a born-again child of God? And the answer is he won't. 
all that God's promised will be fulfilled because he already gave the greatest. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. You know what he's saying there? In the court of heaven, Satan stands before God and accuses the saints. The Bible says that. Satan accuses us before God. We are always being accused before God of being unworthy of his, of his love, unworthy of his grace, and yet we have victory in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's he who justifies. In other words, you can make all the accusations you want, but God's the judge and he's already said, I'm justified. So there's no higher court. There's nobody to take my, my sins or my accusations to because God's already forgiven me. Do you understand the victory we have in Jesus Christ? Who is he who condemns us? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also make intersection for us? In other words, who can condemn us? Jesus already bought our freedom. Who can bring accusation against us? And Paul goes on to say there, that all these things that we might think separates us from God, he said they won't. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loves us. So just as these uh, tribulation saints had victory or will have victory in that time, so we have victory today. You say, well, Pastor, how come I feel like I'm living such a defeated Christian life? Simply because you're not availing yourself of the victory that's already yours. When I fail, I'm simply not availing myself of the victory and the power I have in Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm relying on the flesh. Or I'm allowing those temptations and those idols to rule my life. We have the victory in Jesus Christ. We just got to move over there and enjoy it and claim it and use it. God said so right here. So we have the victory, same as they had. Now notice this very quickly. The second thing they're doing in heaven, not only do they have the victory, but they are worshiping. Now I'm going to tell you why I think they're worshiping. Two reasons. Number one, I think they're worshiping because God's awesome. And when you get in heaven and you, and you see Jesus in his resurrected glory on the throne, and you see all that stuff in heaven, it, worship's just going to break out. It's just going to happen because God's so great. I'll tell you another reason why I think they're worshiping. I think they're worshiping because they're thankful God's about to bring justice. They, listen, these saints suffered terribly before they died under the hand of the Antichrist. Their loved ones suffered terribly. I mean, can you imagine a scenario where Someone holds a gun to your child's head and said, if you don't deny Christ, I'm going to kill your kid. That's a dilemma, isn't it? I mean, from our humanity, that, that, that's a, you can't deny Christ. So you're going to stand there and watch your kid get killed. I'm sure that happened to these people. I'm sure every imaginable, every, every kind of wicked thing that can happen, Antichrist will do it to these people. And now God has got the seven angels lined up and he's giving them the bowls of judgment. And they're praising God going, God. It's time to make this stuff right. It's time to take care of those who, who killed my family and those who tortured us and those who did that stuff. It's time to bring justice, and they're worshiping God. Now, they're worshiping, singing two songs. You notice it here? One, they're singing the song of Moses. Where's that at? I'm glad you asked. Genesis 15. You know where the song of Moses came from? Remember when God delivered Israel out of Egypt and they crossed over the Red Sea and God drowned Pharaoh's army? And on the other side, Moses' sister and all the other people, they started singing and they wrote a song. And in that whole song, if you go read it, it's about God being a mighty warrior. It's about God being a deliverer and God being a great God and all of his glory. The song is about God. And so they're singing it. And so these saints in heaven are singing the song of Moses. Why? Because God brought them through the tribulation. He brought them there and he delivered them. And they're singing about God being a mighty warrior and a great deliverer. And then it says they're singing the song of the Lamb. So where do we see that? Revelation chapter 5. Remember when the, when the elders are around the throne 
and the four living creatures, and they're singing the song of the Lamb. You say, what's the song of the Lamb? It's the song of Jesus being the Savior. It's the song of Jesus being the Redeemer. And the raptured church sang it first. We sang it first around the throne of God. The 24 elders represent the raptured church. So when these saints get to heaven, they've been... Guess what they do? They go, man, we like that song. They start singing the song of the Lamb. And so they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb before God. Well, let me say a word here real quick about worship. Some of you may have seen this video. We were in a car the other day, and Sherry goes, you got to see this worship video. So I don't know. You're not supposed to watch videos while you're driving, but I did. I watched a little bit of it. I don't know if you've seen this. and I don't even know where this church is at, so I don't, I don't know. There's a praise team of a man and two women up on the stage, up on the platform. And when they start to sing, they start to dance. Now, I'm not going to get into the issue of dancing, but, here, but here's what it looked like. Just an observation. You remember the boy bands of the 90s? The choreographed you know, crossing your legs, shifting sideways, and you're twirling around, and you're, you know, and that kind of stuff. They're doing that. I mean, they were, they, the three of them would shuffle across the stage, twirl around. They'd shuffle back across the other way, and, you know, they had some moves. I mean, I'm, I'm, it, they, obviously they had practice. And then at one, now they're singing a praise song while they're doing this. At one point in the song, the, the, Mute, the words part, the, the, the verses stopped and the music's playing. And the two ladies kind of back up and the dude just breaks bad right in the, right in the front. Man. He's like spinning around and, and you know, doing, doing all kinds. Of, he like, I think he moonwalked at one time. I don't, I don't know. Now listen. Far be it from me to pick on somebody if that, you know, I don't know. I know David danced before God and I got all that. I don't think David moonwalked in front of God. I'm just jumping out on a limb there. I'm not sure he did that. Here's, here's my issue with that, okay? And I'm just using it as an example. I don't even know who it is. I mean, it might be your home church. I don't know. I don't know. Just kidding. When these people are worshiping heaven, here, here, where do we learn how to do what we're supposed to do? Right here, right? These, these saints that are worshiping heaven, let me, let me give you some characteristics about what they're doing here and what they're not doing here, okay? They're singing for all it's worth. They're singing the song of Moses. They're singing about the Lamb. You know, you know what you don't see in this worship? Anything about them. And here's what I mean by that. You know what these saints could have said? They could have looked around heaven legitimately. Now, listen, they could have looked at us, the church, because we're going to be there first. We're going to get raptured, and we'd be there. They could look over at the church and go, man, you guys had it easy. You didn't have no persecution. You live, you live, and they could look at us who live here in the United States and go, man, you had everything. We went into the tribulation, got saved, and it cost us everything. And, man, we endured. We're here because we trusted Jesus. and we're, They, they could have... They, Maybe they have something they could boast about. And they could say, man, among Christians in the world, we stuck it out. You guys had it so easy. All you worried about was, you know, getting another house, another car, and, and, and where you're going to eat after church. You said, man, we died. Our family was killed. They could have, they could have said, man, we, we, were the, we were the true thing. 
But you know what you don't find in here? Nothing about them. You know why? Because they're giving all the glory to God. And they don't want anybody to, they don't say anything about themselves. Why? Because God did it all. Now, here's what I'm going to say about our, our worship and that little illustration I just gave you about the, you know, the three twirlette dancers and stuff going on on the stage. We have to be really careful not to draw attention to ourselves rather than give it all the glory to God. Now, there's nothing wrong with being talented and being a fantastic singer or musician or being a gifted orator like Apollos was in the New Testament. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with people going, man, I want to go hear this person sing because it blesses me or I want to hear these musicians play, it blesses me. That's fantastic because God gave us the talent. He gave us the, the, the skills and the spiritual gifts to use. But, but there's a line there. The moment, the moment it becomes about entertainment and the moment it becomes about, about, about us, then we've, we're robbing glory that belongs to God. We're robbing attitude that belongs to God. And we have to really prayerfully be careful about that and not go over that line. Listen, uh, worship is important. It is a vital part of the church, and that's why Jeff and the, and the musicians work so hard on it. Matter of fact, Johnny Hunt said one time, it is the worship time that lowers the wall of resistance so you shoot people with the gospel. Man, I like that. I never forgot that. You know, you get, you get people in the, in the singing about Jesus and, and they see Christians really worshiping God and it lowers the resistance for people who need to be saved so you can get them with the gospel. But we have to be careful that it doesn't become all about entertainment. It doesn't become all about us and about what I want and, and what I think we ought to do. Listen, these saints, these saints were worshiping God because they recognized who he is and all the glory was his. Listen, let me tell you something. What brings us into the presence of God to worship? It is his word. It is his word that reveals who he is. And that's why we have to sing about Jesus. We have to sing about what the Bible says. And so these saints are worshiping. Now let me, let me close with the justice of God in verses 5 to 8. Look at what it says here. After these things I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. There's a temple in heaven. We already know that. And the things opened up, and, and, and then watch what it says in verse 6. Now the temple came to seven angels, having the seven plagues, the seven judgments, clothed in pure bright linen, having their chests girded with golden bands. I don't have time, but you know what? They're dressed like priests here. They got the golden girdle thing on and the, and the, and the robe, and they got the judgment. These, these seven angels are about to drop the hammer is about what's happening, okay? And they're specifically ordained by God to do that, verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures, one of those creatures surrounding the throne of God, gave to the seven angels golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Well, I, that's an amazing scene. The temple in heaven is filled with the smoke of the glory of God, and, and until his wrath is satisfied against him, nobody can even enter into the temple in heaven. The Scottish pastor and scholar William Barclay said this, and it's a good quote. I saw it this week. Let me read this to you. He said, and I quote, These angels come out from the place where the law of God rests and come to show that no individual or nation can defy the law of God without having to suffer the consequences, end quote. Man, what a good quote. From the very place where the law of God is at, these angels come forth to deliver the wrath of God. God's justice will be satisfied against sin. Now, here's your choice today. Listen to me. The Bible says in Psalm 711 that God is angry with the wicked every day. 
Think about that for just a moment. God is angry with the wicked every day. But he's storing up his wrath right now. Why? To extend grace. So if you're watching online, or you watch this video later, or you're here this morning, and you've never confessed your sin to God and asked him to forgive you, God is angry with your sin. And the way to have your sin pardoned, the way to have it forgiven, is by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin so that we can be forgiven. I invite you this morning to come to Christ today and be delivered from the wrath of God to come. Be forgiven of your sin and let Jesus save you today. Let's pray. Father, in this chapter, we see the storm clouds forming and rising at the end of the tribulation, the final and complete pouring out of your wrath against sin. Lord, we live in a, in a privileged day. We live in a great time to be saved on this earth. Lord, we live in a great nation. We live among a great people, but sinful. God, we live in a nation that you have blessed beyond measure, more than any nation in the history of the world. And God, we are a people of unclean lips, as Isaiah said. But God, because your church is here, you have blessed us. And God, you have multiplied your word. And God, today... There may be somebody under the hearing of your word who has never been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for them right now as they watch this video or maybe they're watching online right now in their living room. The Lord, they may just bow their head in their heart right now and say, God, I'm a sinner and I know it. And God, I deserve that wrath, but I thank you for grace and mercy. And I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay for my sin. And God, by faith, I ask you to forgive me and save me right now. God, you'll save all who call. Pray that people all, all over, everywhere who hear this word will be saved today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing. If I can pray with you or help you, you come on the first verse.